If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Great Reputations, our series exploring the divisive legacies of some of history's biggest names. In today's episode, we'll be discussing political activist and suffragette leader Emmeline Pankhurst. Born in Manchester in 1858 to a politically active family, Pankhurst was engaged from an early age with issues surrounding women's suffrage at a time when voters in the UK were defined as male persons. In 1903, she founded the Women's Social and Political Union, the WFPU, which split from the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies run by Millicent Fawcett in order to adopt more militant tactics in the campaign for the parliamentary vote for women. Her charisma and powerful public speaking skills inspired thousands of women to campaign for this cause, although her direct action techniques and what some saw as militantism alienated some campaigners as well as members of Pankhurst's own family. She died in 1928, shortly before the British government extended the right for women to vote to all women over the age of 21. My name is Dr Lindsay Jenkins. I'm a historian of British political women in the 19th and 20th century. I'm based at Queen Mary University of London, where I'm the deputy director for the Mile End Institute, Queen Mary Centre for British Politics, Policy and Public Life. And I've written about many different aspects of suffrage history. I'm June Purvis. I'm a professor emerita of women's and gender history at the University of Portsmouth. I've written biographies of both Emmeline Pankhurst and Christabel Pankhurst and edited about 12 books, mostly on the suffrage movement. I'm also the editor of the feminist journal uh, Women's History Review. And I organise a, well, I'm the series editor, I should say, for um, a book series on women's and gender history with Routledge. Thank you both so much for being here today to discuss Emmeline Pankhurst. So let's kick off then by exploring some of the wider themes uh, related to this story by considering her family background and her social class. What aspects of those dimensions do you think are important to consider? Well, she came from this radical family. I mean, her great-grandparents had campaigned in the radical causes of the day, and both her parents, Robert and Sophia Jane Golden, they supported the two great reform movements, which was the abolition of slavery in the USA and votes for women. And don't forget, her mother had been born in the Isle of Man, which gave women the vote in the 1880s. And the mother used to read stories to the children about Uncle Tom and all that and also tell them about the suffrage cause. And when she was about 16, I think, Emmeline was taken to a suffrage meeting where she heard the great Lydia Becker speak. And she says in her autobiography that she came out of that a confirmed suffragist. It wasn't a a non-political background, it was a background 
where she was aware of the key causes of the day. And of course, what she's getting out of this background is what June's describing is sort of access to resources and to ways of thinking about the world, you know. In a way, she's gaining lots of opportunities in terms of material resources, in terms of education, political education as well. But she's also really sort of conscious, I think, from an early age about the inequalities that women experience. And so although in some senses that her parents are really committed to this cause of women's suffrage, but also she's very sort of aware, I think, that her and her brothers exist in a very different world with very different expectations. Do you think that we can trace across her involvement in this movement an increasing radicalism or an increasing militantism? Or is that a misreading of the story? Yeah, I think... One thing you must remember is that women had been campaigning for the vote from at least 1865 and it had mainly been a lot of talking about suffrage and nothing being achieved. So I think that's why she founded the WSPU in in 1903 with this slogan, Deeds Not Words. She was fed up with all the talking about suffrage, all the divisions that went on between feminists in the 19th century. And what she wanted to have was an an action organisation. And although we say it's primarily about votes for women, I think it's a very important point to remember. It was wider than the vote. It wasn't just the parliamentary vote. They wanted to get rid of all the disabilities, as they call them, that women suffered from. So... Later in the campaign, they talk about a campaign for women's liberation. So we must never forget that, not just about the vote, which is how too many historians portray it. Do you think there's a reason why this story has focused so much on just one aspect of this campaigning? Well, I would say it, and I'm always saying this, that you've got to look back at the key narrative that's been very influential in telling the suffrage story and in the story of Pankhurst family. And that is Sylvia Pankhurst's book, The Suffragette Movement, first published in 1931. Now, in that book, you find that Sylvia portrays her hated sister Christabel, who was the mother's favourite child, as the sort of demonizer of socialist feminism. And she thinks that Christabel persuades the mother that Emmeline is easily persuaded to resign from the ILP, the independent labor movement, and to isolate the WSPU from the socialist movement. So I think when you read that, and I keep reading it and rereading it, and reading it again when I'm thinking about Prince Harry's autobiography Spare, which is very much a family drama and about sibling rivalry, you find that again in the suffragette movement. So in the suffragette movement, Sylvia portrays the WSPU as a single issue cause concerned only with a narrow issue of feminism, that is the vote for women. And I think that hasn't been challenged enough. I would add to what June's saying is that one, perhaps one of the reasons why the votes for women's struggle has become such a totemic issue is that it seems much harder to achieve it than some other issues. So women were equally campaigning for things like property rights or 
access to higher education. Now, these things weren't achieved easily, but they don't become the sort of paramount struggle in Parliament, the same kind of totemic issue carried out across so many decades that the the struggle for the vote does. So I think that's one reason why that story comes to dominate. But I think the other one is that, you know, we too easily look for, to tell big historical narratives through individual women. And it's easy to kind of think about Emmeline Pankhurst or Sylvia Pankhurst or Millicent Fawcett as, you know, these leaders of these heroic struggles. But actually, there are so many other women who line up behind them, beside them. And that sort of sense of the suffrage struggle, the campaign for women's equality, for women's rights, as much more of a collective issue, which isn't necessarily dominated by these uh, one or two figures, is I think very, very important to, to remember. Do you think this story has therefore unhelpfully dominated the wider cause? Some people would say that the focus on Emmeline Pankhurst and the suffragette movement has rather obliterated the contribution made by Millicent Garrett Fawcett and the suffragists of the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies. But on the other hand, I think you've got to remember that the suffragettes of the WSPU and Emmeline Pankhurst grabbed the headlines of the day because they had imaginative exploits which were taken up by the press and also they were the ones that bore the brunt of the struggle. So even for peaceful activities such as processions to Parliament or heckling Liberal MPs, they could be arrested and put in prison. And then from July 1909, Marion Wallace Dunlop went on hunger strike and then towards the end of that period, towards the end of September, the government forcibly fed the suffragettes who were imprisoned and were starving themselves. And Emmeline herself had 13 imprisonments and towards the end of those she went on hunger strike, thirst strike and sleep strike which played havoc with her body. So I think that is why the prominence has been given to Emmeline and the suffragette movement, because Millicent Fawcett is seen as a bit sort of dull and plodding, although she was a very important figure for her persistence and her patience as well. And the suffragists engaged much more and less eye-catching exploits that didn't, of course, attract the attention of the press. And it's, it's this question of what gets attention, isn't it? Because in a way, we also might think about how just getting the vote, although it's become this really iconic moment in women's history, but of course, that didn't mean that everything was fine after that or all the problems had been solved. And in some ways, all this attention to that kind of particular legislative achievement means that we don't necessarily think so much about what happens next. Why is it so difficult for women to get into Parliament? What are the kind of big changes that they are able to achieve once they're there? In what areas are they still being held back? So, you know, even kind of just thinking about the vote, in some ways, is quite a misleading way to think about the broader struggle for women's equality. Given this perhaps understandable increasing militantism across her life, do we get a sense of how Pankhurst's contemporaries viewed her and did that change over time? I think initially, from 1912, there was a lot more illegal activity by the suffragettes, particularly, you know, the arson and burning campaign. Up to 1912, I think she was very much admired. She had great dignity, great presence, and was a powerful orator 
a spellbinder she was in, in her speeches, and she didn't use notes at all. She just extemporised. So I think that's very important to remember. So I think she was admired for her fighting spirit, but from 1912, when a minority of the suffragettes engaged in illegal activity, things like destroying mail in post boxes, pouring acid on men's golf courses, which of course made them very popular, especially if they left a copy of the suffragette or votes of women behind with a stone on it, burning down empty buildings, etc., then I think there was a lot of concern from the public. But don't forget, Emmeline always emphasised that human life was sacred and that no one was to be hurt because of this activity. She didn't initiate it herself, that campaign. That was undertaken by women in a women's movement who had quite a degree of autonomy as to what they did. I definitely think that she was very admired and respected, especially as as June says, and particularly in the early years of campaign. There is, you know, it's very easy for us to kind of divide them into two groups and think about suffragettes and suffragists. But actually, there's a tremendous amount of crossover. There are women in the WSPU who won't engage in those sorts of militant activities. There are plenty of women in the NUWS who are very, very sympathetic towards what these women are doing. A tremendous amount of, of care and concern for those who are going on hunger strike and, and being force-fed, a com- tremendous amount of kind of compassion towards those women and understanding. And I think that they're all working towards the same goal and they have respect for the ways in which one another is doing that, even though they might not necessarily agree with all of it. I think she perhaps does become a more controversial figure later on in the First World War. Obviously, there's quite a lot of disagreement about the appropriate tactics for the women's movement, about, you know, whether it's right to give up such overt campaigning for the suffrage or whether, you know, the country has to come first, otherwise there'll be no country for women to vote in. So then there is kind of perhaps more fracturing around around those bigger issues. Emmeline did emphasise during the war campaign not only that women had to have a country to vote in, but also if you look at her speeches very carefully, she does mention women's enfranchisement when she's talking about patriotism and serving your country because she argued that if women contributed to the war work, making munitions in the factory or being bus inspectors or whatever, if they contributed to war work, then the government could not refuse them their enfranchisement at the end of the war. And I think she was right on that. So although she called an end to so-called militant action on the outbreak of war, she didn't desert the cause of women's suffrage. She, She still had it there. And of course, as our attitude to the First World War has changed, so that changes how we think about those people who are really, really active in, in support of the First World War, of which Emmeline Pankhurst was an ardent patriot in that respect. One of the more perhaps controversial readings of this story is to paint Pankhurst as some kind of terrorist. How much sympathy do you have for that point of view? Well, I think this is nonsense, and I think some people want to sell their books by uh, labelling her as a terrorist. So I'll put my neck out on this one. Terrorism, to me, means the targeting of civilian populations. What the suffragettes did, they attacked property not people. No one died because of their activities. So when they were attacking property, I see that as vandalism. I think that's a more accurate word to describe it. 
She said time and time again, suffragettes should not endanger human life. And even in the 1950s, one of the older suffragettes who was still alive, Mary Lee, said, we had strict instructions. We were not to harm a cat or a canary. So that's the line I take on that. Secondly, she wasn't charged as a terrorist by the government. There was no law at that time uh, of terrorism. And they could easily have introduced a law if they wanted to. They did very quickly for the Cat and Mouse Act of April 1914 when suffragettes in prison who were in poor health because of the forcible feeding and the hunger striking that they did before that, the government quickly introduced that bill to let them to be released into the community to regain their strength and then to go back into prison. So if they'd wanted to introduce a bill, they could have done. They didn't. If you look at the newspapers at the time, another point I want to make is they talk about outrages on property mostly, not terrorist attacks. And also, I think today particularly, um, terrorism is linked to religious extremism. And terrorism today wants to close down debate and impose religion and restrictions on the female sex. And that's exactly the opposite to what the suffragettes were fighting for. I think the real obstacles to granting the vote were not militancy, were not the arsenal bombing campaign, but the people in Parliament. And Richard Toy is very good on this. You know, he's a professor at Exeter. And he makes the point that both of the main political parties, that is the Tories and the Liberals, wanted party advantage from a women's suffrage measure. So the Conservatives wanted a narrow women's suffrage bill to go through Parliament that would be based on a property qualification and that would mean that the women who had that property qualification would vote for them. The Liberals wanted, in fact, a women's suffrage bill that got rid of property, a property qualification, and that would bring in working-class women without property who are more likely to vote for them. So I think this whole debate about whether militancy helped or hindered the granting of women's suffrage is... A bit of a red herring, I think. Not everyone will agree with me, of course, on this, but there we are. I'm just putting a view forward. I think what it is, it's the obstacles of the men in Parliament. And I'd agree. I don't, I don't necessarily think it's helpful to think about militancy and terrorism in the same in the same breath. And I think that's partly because, as June was saying, we have a really different understanding of what it means to to be terrorist and that way of of, of behaving is associated with particular extremist views. The suffragettes are essentially a movement for democracy. They're a movement about expanding freedom. The Chartists burn down buildings, but we don't talk about the Chartists as terrorists. And so I don't necessarily think it's helpful to equate those two things. I also think that the problem is that militancy and what militancy means now has become really associated with these sorts of extreme violence, the arson, the bombing. And those things are really important, but they're carried out by such a tiny minority of women over such a short space of time. Militancy for most women is taking part in a procession. It's 
giving a public speech. It's standing up in a meeting. It's wearing a sash. It's going and interrupting a church service. It's, it's all these things. It's not the kind of the really extreme forms of violence that we too often associate it with. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. We alluded earlier to some of the interpersonal drama within Pankhurst's family. Do you think that is one of the key things that has shaped our view of this story? Well, I would say definitely yes. I mentioned the importance of Sylvia Pankhurst's book, The Suffragette Movement, written in 1931. And Hilda Keane has made, I think, quite an insightful assessment of that. She says, Sylvia writes as an angry socialist and a rejected daughter. Now, Sylvia is an angry socialist because her mother and her elder sister, Christabel, who led the suffragette movement, they resigned from the Independent Labour Party in 1907 and they insisted that the WSPU must be independent of all men's political parties in order to attract all women across the political spectrum and women from all different social classes. And and that that was very, very important. So I think you've really got to read and reread the suffragette movement as a family drama with this sibling rivalry and this love-hate relationship Sylvia had with her mother. So she's writing as an angry socialist. She's also writing as a rejected daughter because Christabel was Emmeline's favourite child and Christabel was the co-leader of the suffragette movement and Sylvia didn't agree with a lot of their women-centred policies. She wanted to ally the WSPU much more to the socialist movement. She even calls Christabel a Tory in that, you know, her incipient Toryism because she's women-centred and she marginalise a social class. I think it's part of the attraction of the story, isn't it, in terms of kind of narrative and an exciting story about mothers and daughters and sisters all falling out with each other. And I think that's part of the reason why this story 
it does have resonance you know it's very it's a very kind of we can all relate to that in different ways the kind of family drama of it and there certainly is a sense I think in which everyone has their own favorite Pankhurst and they're quite different personalities they have really different interests as as June's saying there's a socialist one the communist one who has to run away the most dramatic one who, so they all have their different perspectives and different personalities but that sort of sibling rivalry isn't something which is a kind of common characteristic to the suffrage movement as a whole. There are lots of families who are working collaboratively together. The sisters all kind of commit to the same cause. They're very much part of the same sorts of movements. There are plenty of families in which their politics and their family love survive the fires of the suffrage movement. It's not as exciting a story though, isn't it? So there is something in which, you know, the kind of narrative excitement perhaps helps to be remembered but means you're remembered in a particular way. That's a really interesting point. Do we get a sense of how Pankhurst herself thought she might be remembered or how she wanted to be remembered? I get a great sense of her wanting to be remembered as a fighter for women's equality and I think one of the problems today is that I mean she was undoubtedly a feminist She always put women's first. That's why she went through all the political parties. So she started off being a liberal, liberalism, then became a socialist. Then she went to the women's revolution. And in the the later years of her life, 1927 in particular, she stands as a Tory candidate. And what she's trying to do is to to fit women's issues into all of these male-dominated parties and finding it very difficult. I have no illusion that she would have stayed a Tory. You know, she wasn't considered blue enough for the Tories. So I think you've always got to remember that if you're woman-centred, it's it's often very difficult to politically as as to where you, you end up. I think she had a very important sense of herself, as June was saying, as a fighter and as a figurehead. And that comes across very strongly in her autobiography, which comes out when the, the suffrage campaign is very much still at its height. It's one of the first uh, suffrage autobiographies. And even just that sort of sense of, I am someone who's got a story worth telling and I can use it to my wider political advantage. That's quite a striking statement for a woman to be making it this time. So she does believe in herself and in her value and in the things that she can contribute but she also is quite a savvy political operator and that she knows that she is a figurehead and that there are all of these other women alongside her she wants to kind of channel what they can bring and lead them in a particular direction but she recognizes that this isn't something that anybody can do alone that it has to be a collective endeavor Is it possible to trace the points at which Pankhurst's reputation reached particularly high or particularly low points? If we were to plot it on a graph, would that be possible? Um, Yeah, I should think before 1912, as I said, I should think she was considered very, very highly. I should think her reputation drops after the arson and bombing campaign. But then it, it resurrects itself during the First World War because she was seen as patriotic and supporting her country. And don't forget, Millicent Garrett Fawcett was also taking the same view that you had to be patriotic and support your country. I think what's happened with a lot of feminists today is that they associate feminism with socialism. I remember listening to a debate that Harriet Harman said this about about four or five years ago, that it was mainly um, socialists 
who were feminists, you know, and I don't agree with that. I think you can have liberal feminists, you can have women in the Tory party who are feminists. So I think today a lot of feminists identify feminism with socialism and they find the fact that Emmeline stood as a Tory candidate very difficult. There's also the fact that she had a lot of enthusiasm after being in Canada for the British Empire and that is very unfashionable these days mainly for all the atrocities that were committed so we must remember that you know the emphasis now much more is on looking on the the problems of empire for the poor people who were colonized so in some ways she's a problematic figure for those things but she is of her time a lot of people were enthusiastic about the empire at that time I think there's a period after her death when she's really lionised. I mean, as June says, that her efforts in the First World War were really important in kind of rehabilitating her. And then, you know, she's not quite a grand dame of British politics in the 1920s, but certainly she has a kind of degree of prominence and increasing recognition that people might not have liked the way she went about it. But they ultimately agreed with her objectives. I mean, you can see that in the in her statue is put up quite early on, unveiled by Baldwin. I might have got that wrong, June. Is that correct? Yeah. And it's paid for by women who loved her, like genuinely loved her. There were, you know, so many women who were associated with the suffragettes who were devastated that she didn't get to see full enfranchisement uh, and kind of enjoy some of the, the fruits of that. She was also in quite significant financial difficulties in the last year of her life. So she hadn't kind of had an easy time. And people were kind of keen to ensure that her achievements were recognised. I think June is right to say that now she is seen as more of a kind of problematic figure, as as she was saying in particular, because of her uh, championing of the empire. That, I think, is also important, though, not just to consider her as a product of her time, because we know that there are also critics of empire uh, who were very vocal at the time, and, you know, there was by no means one view on this issue, but also just to recognise that there's not really any point in looking to the past for heroines or for ideal figures who behave exactly as we might like them to do in all situations. The point is rather to identify what they did and understand why they did it. We might not agree with why they did it, but we can kind of come to an assessment and draw our own conclusions. But I don't think it's it's right either to entirely lionise her or to just write her off as not relevant. So in a way, it's a fool's errand to try to unpick a person like Pankhurst from her time, do you think? I think it's very, very tricky once we start thinking about people are only a product of their times, because the times are not a coherent thing in which everybody thinks the same way and behaves the same way. So if we take, for example, attitudes to empire, there were plenty of people who were critical of empire. If we think about racial equality, there were plenty of people who were concerned about racial inequality and were campaigning for greater uh, racial equality. It's more about understanding where people fit in that picture and understanding why they might think like that without excusing it. Another point perhaps we might bring out about her life is that When she gave up her home in April 1907, she never had another settled home. You know, she travelled around with all her belongings in suitcases. Now, this is a woman who's soon going to be, well, she is in her 50s and soon going to go through the menopause and she's either living in hotels, rented flats 
a, an admirer or a fellow suffragette puts her up in the home. So she was like that for years, and I'm just going through all her letters at the moment, and really the amount of different addresses she had, she was she was had a nomadic existence. And I think that, that must have played somehow in, into her conception of herself and, and what she did as well. And the other question I wanted to ask you, Matt, as you're doing this series is, do you think we judge women figures, great women figures of the past, more harshly than we judge the men? Well, in classic journalistic fashion, I'm going to ask that question back to you two. What do you think to that? <laughs> I, I think the great women figures of the past are judged more harshly than the men. So, for example, in regard to Emmeline Pankhurst, we're always going on about the divisions in her family. Uh, don't forget she was a mother to five children. Uh, one little boy died at the age of four. Her other son, Harry, um, he died at the age of 20. We're always locating it within these family dynamics. Now, we don't do that with other male figures. We don't see them as fathers. Uh, you know, they're hardly ever written about as a father. All we write about is their political achievements or whatever it was. Now, is that a fair comment? Lindsay, what do you think? Yes, I think that is a very fair comment. But I also kind of think it's slightly understandable that people are looking for heroines. And I think that's part of the kind of recovery work of women's history. But I also think it's time to sort of get beyond that and to start thinking about not just looking for people who've behaved perfectly or as we would want them to or were properly right on on every single issue. That's very hard to find. And if we look for perfection we're not going to get very far. The point is rather to understand complexity and the way that people behave in different circumstances and different contexts. It's not necessarily to just kind of find some ideal woman that you can model yourself after. So I think there's it's too easy to either just write people off for being completely problematic or to only look for people that we want to celebrate and champion unproblematically. It's important to remember that when women in Britain get the vote in 1918, that's not the case for uh, many other women in the empire. And British suffrage campaigners were often campaigning not to necessarily get the vote for women in parts of the empire as citizens on equal terms, but they were also kind of looking towards what they might have seen as kind of suffering sisters, women that they might be able to help through their elevated, superior position. There isn't always a kind of attitude to equality there. Women in some of the colonies have been enfranchised, notably Australia and New Zealand. But women in many of the other British colonies actually have to wait a long time for independence before they're fully enfranchised as, as equal citizens. So that's part of the reason, I think, why we particularly need to understand the relationship between the suffrage movement and the uh, empire. Who's left out of enfranchisement in 1918? It's not just younger women, it's women across the empire. Thank you so much. We've talked a bit about the ways in which, I suppose, Pankhurst's story has been flattened or only some aspects of it are told. What dimensions of her life and her legacy would you like to see given more priority now in 2023? I think Emmeline and Christabel Pankhurst were very important in exposing the double sexual standards of the day. I mean, other feminists had done that before them, but they did it with much more coverage in the press. And what Emmeline really exposed, I think, was the power of men 
over women in Edwardian society. Don't forget, if you were a woman at that time, you just could not vote. It doesn't matter if you were a duchess or a scullery maid. You couldn't vote simply because of your sex. So what they did expose very, very well was the sex discrimination and also the power relationships uh, between men and women. And this, as I said before, was a theme taken up by radical feminists in, in the 1970s. So it's those conceptions, those ideas, I think we often tend to forget in this struggle uh, for the parliamentary vote and for equality for women in all walks of life. I think, for me, it's about understanding the parliamentary vote as just one part of her life. So not just that the parliamentary vote goes alongside many other campaigns for things like uh, improved education for women or improved employment rights, but also her work in local government. Women have been able to vote in local government for many, many years before they were able to vote in the, in parliamentary elections. And so for women, local government was often a place where they could really have an impact and get things done, particularly on issues like housing or sanitation or education, which were issues which were really important to women and children. I think for Emmeline Pankhurst, her experiences working as a poor law guardian, so working with some of the most uh, destitute people in her community, was really transformative experience. It really sort of opened her eyes to the social conditions of the time, but it was also an area in which it was sort of acceptable for women to do things and to, to make a difference and to sort of bring their particular maternal qualities to the to the table. Now, we obviously would have particular views about whether that's a helpful way for, to frame women's involvement in politics, but nevertheless, less that's a, a place where women get things done and we too often I think maybe look to national government as the kind of place where things happen but actually it's local government that has a, an impact on everyday life and women's involvement there was absolutely critical. There are some people who would perhaps argue that Pankhurst and her story has obscured the influence or the contribution of working class women what would you say to those claims? I think working-class women were quite well-researched in the 70s and 80s by socialist feminist historians like Jill Liddington. She showed how in Lancashire, for example, a lot of the uh, working-class women were active in the suffrage movement as suffragists. So I've, I felt that was a key thing then and that they were very critical of the suffragettes and Emmeline and Christabel uh, in particular. And now, of course, a lot more people, including Lindsay, have shown how working class women were involved in the WSPU and the suffragette movement, that militancy in all its varieties didn't put them off. So I don't see the class question um, as quite so relevant as you want to make it, Matt, I think. I'll let Lindsay come in on that. Uh, yes, I think, Matt, I'm one of the people who would say that actually we need to hear more about working class women in, in the same way that I think we need to hear more about people who are active in the suffrage struggle outside London and the cities. I think we need to hear more about different ages of women. You know, we think about it as maybe a young woman's game. It's quite hard work going on the run and that kind of thing. But actually, we know there were lots of older women involved in the in suffrage campaign who de dedicated themselves their lives to it. So I think what you're raising is an important bigger question about whose stories get remembered. And it's really important that it's not only the people who are kind of most skilled at publicity or who kind of write the autobiographies or 
are able to kind of best put themselves forward but also that as historians we have a, a responsibility and a duty to kind of look beyond those and to to get at these wider and more diverse stories which are more inclusive bring in women from from different backgrounds and again I think that's something the centenary did really well in that there were loads of towns villages across Britain and even wider where people were sort of rediscovering their own family connections uh, people who'd been involved in their towns and 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 villages the suffrage struggle was not just something that middle-class white women were interested in it was something that very, very diverse groups of women were interested in. Working class women want it because they see the vote as really relevant to their lives as a way in which they can get other things done. They don't just want it in and of itself. They want it because they want to reform the laws that govern their factories. They want to reform the laws that constrain their pay. They want to reform the laws that take their children away from them, that don't properly support them when their partners die. So they want it as much as middle class women and they commit as strongly as middle-class women. And that's really important to remember. Just to get back to the WSPU and the suffragette movement, it's important to remember that the bulk of the suffragettes were located in their local branches. So this backs up Lindsay's point. And a lot of those women were working-class women. So all too often, I think, we focus on WSPU headquarters in London and, and the women who were involved in that, but there was a lot of activity in, in the local branches. Finally, how do you think Pankhurst will be viewed in 50 years' time? I think she'll still be viewed as the great figure that she was, who campaigned to make Britain a democracy that included women. You know, she's regularly voted sometimes as the woman of the 20th century or amongst the top five or the top ten or whatever. But I don't think she'll lose that position. And she won't lose it because she sacrificed a lot as well, I think, for it. I hope that she'll also be seen as a kind of multi-dimensional, more complex person who has got these range of interests as well as kind of committing herself to this cause and a recognition that that complexity is part of what makes her a human as well as a as a campaigning figure. But I also hope that she'll be recognised alongside many, many other women who equally were campaigning for the vote, but also campaigning for women's equality in many other respects. I think one of the things that the centenary was really useful for a couple of years ago was bringing to the fore many different stories of different women that we uh, haven't heard about before. People like Sophia Dalip Singh, who is now kind of recognised as more of a household name. There are so many women like her, women like Jessie Stephen, uh, who was a trade unionist campaigner from Manchester. Women all across the country were involved in, in these sorts of campaigns. And I think it's important that we see Emmeline Pankhurst as an important one of many, but one of many. That was June Purvis in conversation with Lindsay Jenkins talking to me, Matt Elton. And don't forget you can hear more episodes in this series by heading to historyextra.com forward slash great hyphen reputations. Mm-hmm.